Hi, my name is Hero Bean Stevenson, and you're listening to the All of Us podcast, where we explore and embrace mental health through the simple act of honest conversation. Before we get into it, I'd like to mention that in sharing my personal experiences and insights, I do not claim to be an authority or expert on any of the issues that might come up in the discussion you're about to hear. These conversations include in-depth discussion around various mental health-related topics, the details of which may be triggering to some. So please take care while listening. Finally, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Before we begin, I'd also like to take a moment to thank and talk about BetterHelp, our first sponsor for the podcast. To be honest, I can't remember the first time that I went to therapy. What I do know is that since I was a little girl, it has been a consistent presence in my life, something that through my worst and best moments, I've been able to count on to provide me with support, guidance, and the feeling of being heard and understood. It's been an absolutely invaluable resource for me, and one that I believe everyone deserves access to, which is why I'm so excited to be partnering with BetterHelp as the very first official sponsor of this podcast. BetterHelp is an online resource that makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient so that anyone struggling with facing life's many obstacles or anyone who simply needs a space to be heard can get the support that they deserve anytime, anywhere. BetterHelp offers access to licensed, trained, experienced, and accredited psychologists, marriage and family therapists, clinical social workers, and board-licensed professional counselors so that you can use BetterHelp with the comfort of knowing that your mental health is in highly vetted and trustworthy hands. Visit www.betterhelp.com slash allofus to receive 10% off your first month of counseling. Hi, welcome back to the All of Us podcast. It is Monday evening, March 21st already. I can't believe it. And this is episode 37 with my dear friend, Fung Tran. Fung was born in Vietnam and immigrated to the U.S. with his family when he was nine years old. And as a child in New Orleans, one revelatory experience cooking an omelet for his siblings made Fung realize that food had the power to uplift and connect people. And from that day, cooking has been Fung's vehicle for delivering those core forces to everyone in his world. He began his professional career training under top chefs Jean-Georges and Thomas Keller before moving on to pursue independent endeavors such as Croft Alley, which has two locations here in Los Angeles where Fung is currently based, as well as working with a roster of private clients that has included... Kanye West and Radiohead, both of whom I absolutely adore. So it's very impressive. Additionally, Fung is founding partner in a Japanese-inspired clothing company called Obataimu, which is focused on creating ethically made garments that draw inspiration from holisticism, Ayurveda, and metaphysical thought to create unique sensory experiences for the wearer. Please enjoy today's conversation with my favorite, the most interesting, Fong Tran. Hey. Hi. Good to be sitting with you. I'm happy to be here with you. It's such a, a privilege to be doing this in the same space. And I feel the same, and I'm happy we made it happen in a matter of a day. I know. Me too. <laughs> Spontaneity is always the best yes, thing. Yes, I, I agree. But yeah, I was just, I was just telling Fong, <laughs> speaking to an audience here, I was just telling Fong that I rarely get to record any podcast episodes in person um, and it just makes for such a special experience this is so yeah the energy is just so wonderful it is um, it's a much more direct yeah you know, um, because I think for two years we've been zooming and we've been buffered by technology or something else yes so an opportunity post lockdown to have one-on-one -on -one is quite amazing and liberating now so I'm, I'm starting to have that same feeling as you are. Yeah, it's so. it's totally wonderful. And I think also the thing that we just did together reminds me of 
when anyone goes into doing something like I can imagine like people that go on stage and do voice exercises mm-hmm. or any kind of um, not this isn't a, perfor- a performance but like preparatory exercises I mm-hmm. think especially that have to do with mindfulness mm-hmm. are popular and celebrated for a reason and sure. I can see this is making me understand why because do you want to do you want to explain what we just did together before this so we essentially peeled an orange a satsuma orange by that that are in season and, um, and so wonderful and uh, insanely in seasoned um because the sugar levels in there and it's, it's very expressive right the fruit just expresses itself right at this time of year just like blooming flowers or wildflowers when they bloom or you know or jacaranda trees when they have those beautiful lavender so it's very expressive, and food does express itself through its flavor profile, through its development, just like any living thing. So to catch this Satsuma orange at really the height of its expression is, was just amazing. Yeah, yeah. And amazing. So what did we do with the orange? So we essentially peeled it on one go. Um, I had Fung peel it in one, in one go, and I took yeah. pictures of him doing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. When you do it in one go, it... it Unusually, it kind of narrows and, and really helps you focus because otherwise we're just peeling, right? And it's just, there's no art to it. And so by methodically trying to peel it one piece, I really gave it a lot more thought uh, and certainly attention. And I started to look at it differently as, as if I were just going to peel it uh, just for consumption. So I felt like that moment put me somewhere else, right? And put me in a great place of thoughtfulness. Because then at the end of it all, I ate it and it just, it, the flavor was compounded just by that experience. And so I, I think that's a great topic to be on. And that was a great exercise to start this conversation. I think so too. You know? Yeah, I think is what we'll talk a lot about is sort of food and mindfulness mm-hmm. and your relationship to food and how yeah. it's impacted your own mental health and how yeah you feel that impacts the mental health of mm-hmm. all the people that you cook for mm-hmm. and sort of create food concepts for. Yeah. Um, how has food and mindfulness played a role in your life? Well, I, I suppose as humans we are attached to food in more than just feeding ourselves, right? We're sort of one of the most advanced living things. And so by that, we have other engagements with food that's beyond just the eating element. Yeah, we're the only animals that cook. Yeah, I think we apply heat. Yes. Right? The application of heat, if you look through the evolutionary of food, when we discovered fire and started to heat our food, there was a growth in our brain size that correlates with cooking. And so because of that, can we ever go back to eating something raw or denatured by seasonings, by fire, it would be very hard because our body's enzymes through time have developed to really break down this food and give us proper growth. Um, But I I suppose going back to the question with my attachment to food, um, I am a child of war. So, you know, I'm a refugee, which is different than an immigrant. An immigrant, you get to choose what country you go to and, and immigrate and start a new life. But as a refugee, like what we're having going on in Ukraine, you don't, right? Life comes in and imposes and says, look, you need to leave your home country. You need to leave your home, and this is not a choice you have. So in a sense, my experience was very, growing up in a war country, our food was rationed. And so one of my earliest memories is that because all the great cuts of meat and the vegetables were saved for the soldiers, on the front line, we were given rice and sugar. And where was this? This is in Vietnam. Okay. Right, as the Vietnam War is raging in the early 70s. And I remember as a child, and um, it was probably the most disgusting thing I've ever really put down. You're talking about textures of graininess of sugar over rice. It's literally starch on starch, and it's just sugar. And so I think that horrible experience just led me to think, like, there's got to be more to life than just this. But as a young child, I didn't understand 
rationing. I didn't understand why weren't we eating other things. So, mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't until we got to America that I started to experience other foods that, first of all, was foreign to me. And so I remember being nine. We were at a private school, and it was, I think it was enchilada day at school. Well, I don't know what an enchilada is. And so it was so foreign to me that I missed lunch. So if you can imagine as a young child going eight hours of school and not eating something, it's really, you feel those hunger pangs, right? And those hunger pangs are real, and it's, it's painful. So I got home, and I immediately made an omelet. Like, I don't know how I did it. I just remembered how my mom did it. I put it on the plate, and I, I saw my brother and sister come running and devoured it. And I saw what was happening to them. And at that point, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew the power of food. To transform something, someone, and to give them a new experience was so powerful that I knew at that early age what I wanted to do in life. Mm. You know, um, if I happened to pick up, I don't know, drumsticks and play the drum and it affected somebody, I would have played drums. But at that moment, what I saw in my brother and sister and how they transformed was quite powerful. And I just delved into it head on and just explored. And I wanted to help my mom out in the kitchen. I was peeling shrimp. I was trying to get my hands in as much as I, I was just fascinated by at that point. How to transform, take a food item and transform someone's life. Hmm. So to me, that was my paintbrush, my palette, my musical instrument. It was food. And that's my connection to food that it needed to not only feed us, but transform us because we are advanced. And so we go beyond the pale. We go beyond what just feeding people. So that was how I feel about food and my attachment to it. That's wonderful. Yeah. When you were a child and in Vietnam, uh -huh. surviving on food rations that you described as being like so disgusting, did other children, because I'm, I'm imagining that you were definitely in survival mode. Yes. Obviously. Yeah. Um, did other kids or people kind of have the same, like you noticed the way that the food made you feel like this is, I can't stand this, this is awful. Right. Did you see that happening with other people like or like focusing on it or were you kind of like? I, I didn't because I don't know, at that age, I don't know if you can see beyond I think just yourself, right? Because you're exploring who you are. Yeah. Right? I think as an infant, right, at three months, you discover your feet. That's all you know. It's basically your crib area. But then after six months, you can see beyond your crib. So I think at four or five, I, I was really more into myself and what I was experiencing. And it became a more stream of thought, like, what am I doing? Why is this this? Why is there a bomb scare? Why is there a machine gun in the house? You right. know, and so I, I didn't and couldn't think of others. But food allowed me to think of others uh. when I was able to manipulate it and make something. That's when it opened up the shell that I'm not alone anymore and doing this for somebody else. Yeah. And I'm very thankful and fortunate that I had discovered that at nine, right? Because when I look at my peers now, I see a struggle to connect with other people and connect with other human beings. But I, I'm really thankful that, again, I, I discovered that early on, how to connect with people through something else. Hmm. And it immediately made a connection. And to be at that young age and really think of someone else's well-being and happiness was absolutely monumental in my life and kind of helped me set me on a course of who I was. Hmm. And so I've been exploring that route ever since. Yeah. Did you, aside from the omelet memory, did you have, do you have a certain food memory that when you were a child you experienced like food bringing you like a feeling of just like a, such joy and euphoria? I, I, yeah. I, I think was when you actually take something in its raw form, like let's say a shrimp, mm -hmm. and you apply, and I grew up in New Orleans, so when we peeled it, and then make a jambalaya. And the fact that you change the flavor and, the, and to transform it from this 
sort of ugly, you know, shell thing that's gray in color and it changed to a pink color. I was like, okay, now I'm discovering colors in food. Yeah, it's amazing. Right? I'm discovering the aesthetics in food. So I think just discovering it not only on flavor, but on color and sight and sound uh, was quite transforming and or, or rather transformative. And so I think that's the moment for me, right, that was quite amazing. Yeah, I think you have something that I've always been so struck by with you is that while you do have this sort of like zealous approach to food and you're mm -hmm. cooking and you're so passionate about it, it goes beyond just kind of like, and I think with a lot of chefs it does go beyond just flavor and mm -hmm. like composition of a dish and everything like that but Correct. you sort of create this sensory world mm -hmm. um that's attached to your cooking but it has to do with so much more than food mm -hmm. like what you do with your clothing company as well yeah that has to do with like a sensory experience sure and it's so all encapsulating correct is that something that you feel is a mental health practice for you oh absolutely yeah um you know, when you create something, when you do something in anger, it really goes into the final product, right? Or when you cook with sadness, when you cook with grief, that feeling actually will transplant itself into the raw material that you're working with. And at that point, you don't do your best work. Or, you know, if you look at the greatest songwriters of the world, a lot of those great songs are written and they came from a place of sadness and grief whether it's through a breakup or depression and it makes a great song so you can see there is true inflection of the emotions into the product that you do and whatever medium that you work with so i know by cooking or making food and any other emotion other than a great state of being that it does reflect through your food i mean i've had frustrating days and it shows in the food yeah. that I didn't nail down a recipe that I was working on or things didn't turn out, you know. And so I knew I had to clean up myself first before the raw materials cooperated with you. So I immediately, I think it, that came later in my life because I wasn't understanding. I thought we were just manipulating raw materials or adding this. and. Because did you so, go to culinary school? I didn't go to culinary school. Okay. Um, I... Because I feel like they would kind of train that out of you. Like yeah. Yeah. You know, my viewpoint on school now, um, I, I, I kind of don't believe it. <laughs> um, I, I think as humans, we have a really innate natural ability to learn. Mm. And I think nature can help you with that. I don't think a classroom setting would ever give you that. Um, I, I certainly advise a lot of young people who are quite talented and I, I advise a lot of them to not go to school and pursue their sort of natural talents. Um, but I, I think also being hurt along the way and having failures is the biggest teacher. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It is the biggest teacher um, to not internalize the failure, but to look at it and go, okay. Again, it's like putting your hand in, and I always go back to analogies of food. You put your hand in a pot of boiling water, you're never going to do it again because you know that pain, which is the only way to learn, I think. So uh, I think that application of cooking I use in real life. Hmm. So, yeah. So how did, um, after, like you were growing up in New Orleans, you were in school, yeah. you had this beautiful omelet moment. How did food then evolve for you in your life? And how did you kind of make your foray from being obviously a child into... Mm -hmm kind of a, an adult and in the professional food world? Well, I kept studying engineering, but funny enough, in high school, I would sneak over to my friend's house and cook dinners for them. Mm -hmm. I would say, Charlie, you know, is your mom cooking dinner tonight? I want to cook dinner for you guys. And so I was always volunteering to cook over at friends' dinners, Thanksgiving, holidays. And then in college, I started to read more. Even when I was taking my classes, I wanted to explore cooking, and at that point, it became a very art form for me, to the point where everybody was advising me I should go to culinary school. And I said, well, I can't. I would disappoint my family, uh, particularly my father, who 
as immigrants, he worked hard to put us through college and earn the money and, and put us in a better situation. So for me, the fear of disappointing my father was uh, one of the reasons that held me back. And so I got my college degree, but I realized I can't do this for the rest of my life. And so I essentially packed up my things, moved to New York and worked from the bottom up uh, for some of the great chefs in New York and made my way to Los Angeles um, and Napa Valley and then opened my first restaurant in 05. 2005 so where did you work in New York I, I have a strange I don't know if you know this about me I have a weird um like I get so fixated on like different chefs stories mm -hmm. I honestly it started before obviously everyone got really into it with like chef's table yeah but it started before that just like listening to different chefs on podcasts and mm -hmm. audiobooks I become like so invested like I remember I went through a huge Dan Barber phase yeah and, like, a big Christina yeah. Tozzi phase and like yeah. a Dave Chang phase mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like a Wiley Dufresne phase they're all yeah. kind of he's pink. actually one of my good friends no way Wiley Dufresne uh he's doing pizza pop-ups now and I you know was very fortunate to hang out with them and um, this was last year. Yeah. Um, so caught up with him. Um, he's certainly been in the Croft. He comes in the Croft when he comes to LA. So he's a good friend of mine, but I met him through the industry in New York. I worked for the Mercer Hotel. Um, at that point it was John George Vaughn who I had admired and would respected because he was incorporating Asian ingredients and blending it with classical cooking. I, I thought it was a genius move at that point and then end up following him to his fine dining Vongs. Uh, and then where I met Nancy Silverton, I came down to Los Angeles. Oh, amazing. Um, I met uh, Matsuhitsa and worked with his sort of flagship restaurant in Los Angeles here. And then end up in Napa Valley at the French Laundry for a year and a half. So for me, that was my education as working with the great, you know, chefs and artists of, of the time. Um, and along the way, you start to form your own opinion and your own viewpoint of your food and mm -hmm. what it is that you want to see in the world. Um, which, but it was never about restaurants. It was about a viewpoint. So I, I think I'm fortunate enough where I didn't look at it, although it was a business, that I looked at it as something else. Mm -hmm. And it had to impact and I go back to when I was nine, it had to impact a community of people. That was your business, right? So to make important. the impact. Yeah. Because otherwise, it's just a business and I would be bored and I would certainly just be in accounting or you know a business person. But uh, I knew the impact that it had to make the community, the same community that was supporting you. Mm -hmm. So I believe in that symbiotic relationship of back and forth. And so uh, that was my foray into working with the great chefs. And, and then I started traveling a lot more to sort of third world countries. And what I did there was I would hijack a food stall and I, I told the person, you know, the lady or the guy working there, I said, look, can I work for you for an hour? You just tell me what I need to do. I learned more doing that hour at a street cart because I understood when they put the spices in. What was happening with heat? Oh my God! That no Wait, one where ever did would you, Where did you do this? I did this in India. I did this in Brazil. I was in Brazil for a year and a half. I did this in uh, Vietnam. I did this in Japan. So for me, wow. I, I had lived in Osaka for a year, and so I would travel to the sort of the suburban areas, and you know, hey, let me work on your street cart for. I want to learn how to make that, you know. So it, I felt I learned more of applications because now it encompassed not just classical cooking but very specific local cooking mm. that was important to me um, I know in India the common mistake is to put the spices in too early right where it just burns so I had to understand when they were putting it in so for me and, and I think what I learned from that was to be a great student always even if you're much later in life to always be a great student, open up yourself up to learn that you learn more, right? Which obviously you won't get in school oftentimes. So. I love this about you. I didn't know this, that you did this. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes so much sense because it reminds me of why 
I like one of my goals with this podcast is to not just talk like obviously there's so 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 many podcasts like nobody needs another podcast totally right yeah yes no one needs another like there are literally millions and my thing is that when I listen to podcasts now and like I've done this now too when I listen to podcasts it's all like anyone who's on a podcast is like a quote-unquote like it's like somebody famous or like somebody with a a thriving business or someone mm-hmm. some something to quote unquote like in bold teach you something like mm-hmm. they need they're everyone is very established in whatever they're doing and the goal of this podcast which is why it's called all of us is that i and i kind of have haven't really been true to doing this like while i have talked to mostly my friends a lot of my friends are very successful in what they do and are kind of like established and like have a following and things like that and so a lot of who has been on the podcast has been constituted by like people with big followings and stuff like that and I don't I want to kind of veer away from that and Mm -hmm. have it just be a lot more community oriented because the whole ethos behind it is that we really are like regardless of what your like metrics are or who you work with or who works for you or what you do we are all going through this human experience. It just totally. so happens that some of us are in different industries that like garner more attention. Um, but I do want to talk to like my friends' parents who are going through insane times, or like I don't know the person I see with I don't know like on my walk every day. Like I want to talk to more of just my community just mm. to embody the idea that it really is all of us and I think in your we live in such an exclusive world where it feels like only a select group of people have the right to sort of share their experience mm. on a larger platform and I don't think that that's true at all um like I don't think that there's any validity to that and with what you did I imagine like the cooking especially like the highest rungs of like cooking circles that you were working in it's so it can feel very exclusive i'm sure so to then like have this calling to go out and work with people that are like not famous chefs but working in a food stall Mm -hmm. in like india it speaks such volumes to how much community means Mm -hmm. to you in a very real sense because i think a lot of people have this thing of like oh like we need to celebrate community but like their community is in itself very exclusive right how do you, did you find that you were very, I want to know if you felt like from when you started working in New York with all of those sort of like very like well-to-do mm-hmm. like top chefs, did you feel very welcomed immediately or did you kind of, was it really hard on you at first? It was hard when you're new and you go through a very grueling, you know, they'll just throw stuff at you. All right, kid, come on, move your hands, right? Uh, that part was very grueling and then Soon enough, through time, you become part of that fraternity. And what I was noticing about our fraternity, if you would, or our profession, that we were very, we were gatekeepers to like who should have access to great food, who should be working back there. Like, who are we to do that? And I'm glad that happened to me because I realized that we can take this high art form and democratize it. Why can't and I started exploring that t- topic a lot more. If you take foie gras, for instance, in France, right, it was really food among farmers. Mm. And it wasn't until a chef took it and go, well, no, we need to do this to it and apply all this unusual technique when the farmers were already doing it. And so it elevates it and put, it's in a very heady space. And so they become the new gatekeepers of who should eat foie gras. Sushi in Japan is actually street food. It wasn't celebrated. I mean, you look at the best sushi restaurants in Japan, it's in the subway, right? It's not in the, you know, the, the, the chicest part of town, right? So because of what sushi went through evolutionary times with humans, we just elevated to this sort of high status. It's like, that's crazy. We all deserve sushi. We all deserve to eat this kind of a food. So for me, democratizing food was very important to me. Right. Do you think that that came from, like, your that stem from your background oh sure because i can imagine that coming from the situation you came from which was like you grew up in a war zone and then moving into this like very fancy world of exclusivity and like everything's polished and shiny and like pressed and steamed was that kind of like difficult for your own identity i had to reflect on myself first yes 
what did that process you, look you, like? You hit the right mark because if you were still doing that, you end up cooking for yourself. You don't cook for others anymore. So I needed to change the audience, right? Um, and so I needed to change the fact that, hey, this is not for you anymore. This is now, you did this. And your original idea, the original thesis when you did that omelet at nine was to provide some transformative experience to someone else. So I had to get back to that. Hmm. And when I understood that, <clears throat> I think my life opened up much, much more. And the opportunities that I had was just abundant. You know, and, and again, it's not a bragging session, but, you know, um, somebody from Qatar discovered me and wanted me to open there. I had projects in New York. Uh, we end up opening three or four Croft Alleys in Los Angeles. So I, I did consulting jobs in India. So I realized that by taking away my own um, fears, insecurities, and opening myself up to the public and to the audience again and switch the narrative on who I really was cooking for and why, mm -hmm. it opened up, it was a floodgate that really enhanced my life. Do you and think that, because I think that like that's an amazing thing that you held so um, closely to your, like through, through all of your experiences, you held on to that, that moment when you were nine. And I mean, mm -hmm. it's like, it was ingrained in, as a part of your identity. So how could you not? But I think... I can imagine that um, like a lot of people with very tumultuous backgrounds sort of make it, quote unquote, and then I think are tempted to either out of like some sort of self-preservation or like it's too painful to sort of go back to where they came from mm -hmm, mentally, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that they kind of try to like disassociate from that part well, of their identity and really move on. And that is, I think, limiting because you said that when you really reconnected to your true identity mm -hmm. and your roots, that's when all of these opportunities came yes. up and you really thrived. Correct. Have you seen or did you see around you other chefs kind well, of doing the same thing of like sure. suppressing their identity and that that like really thwarting them? Totally. Yeah. Probably one of the most accomplished to me. And, and you know, my definition accomplishes something else, but I've never met a guy or a person who can touch food and tra transform the flavors like I've never. He did a Russian tea room, Russian food. He did a Korean menu in Korean. He made some of the best Italian food I ever had in my life. He was so troubled and really didn't identify anymore with the audience that, you know, and he was mired in alcoholism and drugs. And I, you know, to this day, I don't know where he is and I mm -hmm. hope he's okay. Yeah. I think the perfect example that we all know is Anthony Bourdain. I was just about to ask you. You know, and yeah. this topic was breached the other day with a friend of mine. It says, why, Fong, why do you think he took it? So I was like, it's a lonely place to be, you know, in all those years that I only served myself, mm -hmm. that I only did it for my ego. It is lonely, and it's a lonely place to be. We as humans want to share experiences with others. We want to connect. We want to have a terminal in our life. And, uh, and as soon as I discovered that, I realized that I didn't want it to be about me anymore. Mm. Right? I wanted to put out more for others. And, um, so that helped me a lot. And so I know what creative people can go through. And it's a lonely place, entrepreneurs particularly too, right? If you're starting a business, if you're starting something, and the, again, to your point, the metrics, well, you know, she has 100,000 followers and I'm have, that could be a lonely place to be and exist in. And so I try not to think about that. I try to think, did I make an effect on someone, at least somebody? Yeah. Right? If it hits somebody, if it touches somebody's ears or changed them in any way, that's enough for me. Totally. I, I don't need to change the world. Yeah. And where do we get the pompous attitude that we can change the world? You know, we can change our community. Yes. However big or small your community is, let it be that. Totally. And then Absolutely. grow it. That's really interesting that you say that because somebody asked me the other day um, about like why I'm going into being a psychologist. Mm -hmm. 
and working one-on-one mm-hmm. with people like my goal is to have a private practice mm-hmm. and to meet with patients one-on-one mm-hmm. um and that is very it's very important to me and i feel so called to that that um to going in that direction yes and a friend of mine who is also like in their 20s and he kind of has um like a bigger following and we were talking about the fact that there are so many like young mental health influencers Mm -hmm. and he was like you if you really went for it like i'm sure you could kill it as like a TikTok mental health influencer with like a popping instagram you could like do your little quotes and your videos and like i think you could make so much like you could do so much more like you could reach so much broader of an audience there Mm -hmm. as opposed to just being in a private practice and sure you would be like it'd be a little bit more sort of surface because you're just on social media but like why not do that instead of going through these years of school and doing all of this just to meet like and like he said like when you weigh reaching like potentially like millions of people if it really pops off for you or like hundreds of thousands of people not that that would ever happen for me but like if you get to like the absolute top of like social media it's like millions of people yeah um if you weigh like reaching that many people versus like your 15 clients you would see at a time what is your reasoning for that when you're trying to impact change on like a broader community Mm -hmm. and i said i would rather affect serious lasting change in the lives of two people than have like a million people feel differently for like 10 minutes tops for seeing some sort of inspirational TikTok video of mine. I think that everything on social media is so kind of single use, made for single use. Like it's so disposable and so fast. And I really do believe in process and impacting serious change in in a small community because Mm -hmm. I think like you could make the same kind of connection with like Anthony Bourdain with his show like when he was cooking just in his restaurant like Mm -hmm. I read Kitchen Confidential and then Mm -hmm. I like obviously saw Roadrunner and like I read his other book (coughs) when he was just working in his restaurant and like doing the grunt work of being like working the pass or whatever he Mm -hmm. was doing yeah he really that's when he felt the best Mm -hmm. even though he was always kind of fucked up he always felt the best there and then when he had his show like one could say like oh but you were exposing like a humongous worldwide audience with your tv show like all of these experiences and you were like connecting on such a bigger level larger scale but it's like actually no that shrunk his world so much yeah and i think because we live in this time where like reaching a mass audience is so celebrated and um you're rewarded for it we're losing how important it is and how much honestly more important it is to to work on a smaller scale because it's like it's kind of quantity over or quantity quality over quantity sure and i I think you said the right word which is reward right but what is reward right so a a monetary reward is not a reward right? right it's just a number that says oh you need to keep existing yeah the reward for me to keep existing is these proclamations from not just my diners, but from the people I work with, who I've helped with their lives. So to me, that reward system is a lot more. So I think we have to understand what reward is for each person. But going back to what you're saying is, there is a frequency of energy that we put out. It's sort of sometimes, we certainly can't measure it, but when it's really high frequency, we know what energy feels like. Mm -hmm. So when you try to amass millions of followers, you can only put out low frequencies because this is the only way to penetrate to other lower frequencies. Mm. But when you go high frequency, you can you affect those who are existing on high frequency energy, you see. Not everybody, I think 90% of the world only operates on, right, a very low frequency. Right. So, you know, your, your popular influencers are only dumbing it down to reach that low frequency. People exist on high frequency. You have to really uh, put out your own same energy level as well. So that I understood about energy levels and frequencies of energy was very important to me. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> some great actors really have to try, but there's others who just get on screen and has huge energy that just really takes up a lot of your view space and a lot of your attention units, right? Because they're pulling high frequencies. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
I think one of the greatest stories of energy and frequency is this uh, 52 hertz whale. Um, if you don't know about this, it's the male whale. He sings in 52 hertz. He's known as the loneliest animal in the world. And he'll travel thousands of miles looking for the mate. But the female whale cannot hear 52 hertz. She can only hear 51. They're one frequency away. So this whale forevermore, and, and certainly you look it up, but he's really... Is this a true story? This is a true story. He's the loneliest animal in the world. He's constantly There's looking for... There's just one? No, but the male whales. Oh, so it's, we're not sing. talking about just one no, whale. it's just the male whales who okay. sing in 52 hertz. Got it. Which is really inaudible to us. What kind of whale is this? Should I look well, it up? Yeah, yeah. It's quite amazing. And, and I realized that when I would, you know, read that story, <laughs> it's like, what frequency am I putting out? And what kind of energy levels am I putting out? To me, these are important for me, right? Yeah. And again... If you go back to energy levels, if you cook with anger, that goes into your food. If you cook with sadness, if you cook with great joy, it really does go into your food. Oh, this is so sad. I did yeah. just look it up. It has been described as the world's loneliest, loneliest whale. Yeah. Oh, no. The 52 hertz whale is an individual whale of an unidentified species exactly. that calls at an unusual frequency of 52 hertz. This uh -huh. pitch is at a higher frequency than that of his other whale species, yeah. with migration patterns most closely resembling the 52 hertz whales. So the, the whales that it would most likely come into contact with can't hear it. Can't hear it. This whale. Uh-huh. Oh, and, and the whale that comes closest to it is the blue whale. Yeah. This is so It's an amazing story. Uh-huh. It's quite sad. But here's the... Do you want to hear a, a really good side of this? Yes. So during lockdown, uh, particularly across the world, there was a less number of ships in the ocean. Oh. So there was very less disturbance. You had a huge increase in whale population because of that. That's amazing. Right? Yeah. So now, really, we need to find the root cause of that. Is it because we flooded the oceans with this these sort of cruises and ocean liners, you know, transporting goods across the ocean that we are really ruining the cycle of audio within the whales. So it's quite interesting, but whale population did go up. And I think because they were able to hear the 52 Hertz. That's amazing. Yeah. I've been keeping up with the story. I, I think it's one of the most amazing untold stories of nature. And uh, I think it's also a beautiful love story Yeah, I love, no, I in love itself. That. So, uh, you know, whales are typically lone travelers and, you know, uh, has a really romantic notion to it. Yeah, it's amazing. Like. Yeah. So after, did you go and do the, the all the international sort of like street, like street food cooking that when you would go and like sort of inhabit these stalls? Did you do that after New York? And after Napa? New York, yeah. And before L.A.? And during time in L.A., I was in and out. Um, okay. You know, 2016, I was a year into India. Uh, I was consulting on a project out there and really engaged with that world. Obviously, Is that the first time you had been to India? <clears throat> yeah. How did that... Because I know you now you like kind of write more regularly spend time there. Yes. yes. How did it... Because I know people, it like very um, sort of seriously impacts a lot of people's like spiritual lives going mm -hmm. to India. And mm -hmm. like they have these big awakenings. And like I went when I was... I think I was 16, 15 or 16, mm -hmm. um, and it was so transformative for me. Mm -hmm. How did it impact you, and what has sort of drawn you back to that place, especially when it comes to, like, your mental well-being? Well, you know, when I visit countries, it's never about the architecture or the cafes or the restaurants, but it's always about people. Mm. I think only people can create energy. Just as much as when we produce something, we put energy and we animate inanimate objects. That is our job. And so when I go visit these countries, I really explore the people. And so it, it was some of the loveliest people. Um, there was no hint of, should I clasp my wallet close to me or my cell phone? Or my, is there a fear of getting you know, mugged? There was none of that, right? As let's say in Brazil when I was there, right? You had to clutch onto your and really hold onto your. So, and because of that free flow, I was able to experience it in a different way. Where um, in India did you go? First? I was in Mumbai. Okay. Or Bombay is what the locals still call it. Bombay was the name of the city before you know <clears throat> the British Empire came and imperialized and. Um, 
but it's since been anglicized to Mumbai, which is on the coast, the western coast of India. But then I traveled also to Jaipur, Rajasthan, and into the south, Tamil Nadu, and really found this common thread that these were actually very loving, spiritually um, people. Um, and that myself, with that frequency that they put out, I wanted to match that frequency. Mm. But I think finding spirituality, whether it's in Calabasas or in India, I think it finds you at a moment. And if we allow ourselves to open up, we can find spirituality standing in line for coffee or in India. India has just been, you know, credit for helping to discover some of these elements. But I think spirituality pursuit should be done every day. Mm. It should be done in all of our work. It should be done in our lives and our friendships and our relationships. So that to me is true spirituality. But obviously going to the root and discovering it there and, and seeing the origins was quite uh, eye-opening. Yeah, yeah. Quite eye-opening. But all of my travels through third world countries was during after I had learned from the great chefs at this high level. Um, but I was also disillusioned with my own industry. Why are we gatekeepers? Who gets to say who, who gets to eat what and why we price it so high? So for me, again, it was about democratizing Maybe Google democratized the world, didn't it? Right? If you look at, if you think about who uses Google, it's the minute you're born to when you die. I mean, that's the biggest democracy ever. Do right? you have any? And this is like such a sidebar, obviously, and has yeah. nothing to do with mental health, or maybe it does. But are you sort of like at all? I know that there's like a big fear around Google and how much they're like spying on everyone. There's like one other browser. There's like one safe browser. I forget what it's called. Um, but it's like the one that like doesn't track anything. And yeah. Do you have um, any fear around? You know, I used to. Yeah. Right. I used to. If you look, the biggest. Where, where did you use that for Google? That um, they are what? They spying? track. They spy. Yeah. The biggest spy in our life is the U.S. government. If you picked up your passport, there's a little chip. So wherever you go, they know where you are. Right. That's much more intimate than Google. Do you think so, or do you think it's on the same level? No, I, I think what Google does as a business, it does track what you do, right? Right, And it's pretty innocuous to me, right? If you're looking at lamps, oh, you'll get lamps. Like, really, is that harmful Yeah. to me? Yeah. I don't think so. I mean, I, I feel the same. That, like, I still have the power of choice. Right. I don't want to open it. I don't want to look at it. Right. Right? I'm not, uh, and again, we have to strengthen ourselves, right? You can put as much billboards you want on Sunset, but it doesn't sell to me. Yeah. So I don't, you don't have power over me. Yeah, I recently, there was somebody <clears throat> saying, um, I was listening to a podcast the other day and the person was saying like, we always, we give like social media such a bad rap that like it's ruining people and that it's like destroying people. And it's like, social media is just like a pattern of codes on the computer totally. it's humans that are ruining it's humans. humans exactly like it's the way we're using it totally. and what we're putting right? on, up Look, on there a 10 inch knife is beautiful when you cut food up but it's also a weapon if you wanted to yeah yes so completely. you need to assign the value that it has in your life yes the same value that you assign to friendships and to any relationships that you have right so for me i assign a value on the usage of technology i have in my life and I came from a tech background. So for me, because I understand it, I'm not in fear of it. Mm. It doesn't control me. Right. It needs to serve me. So That's kind of how I feel about food now. Totally. Because I used to be in deep fear of it. <clears throat> right. And it totally controlled me. Yeah. Listen, yeah. our food was rationed as a child. And so for me, and that explains why I eat fast and try to hoard. And it was hard for me to share food. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. If yeah. you have any sort of like... I mean, PTSD can sound very strong, but it's very real in it, a lot of, in so many different yes. like places on the spectrum. And I wanted to know if you have any sort of like um, qualities in your relationship to food that mm -hmm. exist now because of how you were sort of like wounded in that way as a child. Yeah. So the two relationships that you have to food, one is giving food. Right. And the other is receiving food. Yes. So for me, receiving it was very traumatic because food was very rational when we were growing up. We certainly were, we were, you know, having been 
refugees in a new country. You know, we were poor until my father worked his way up in society, but also having food rations. So for me, I always had to hoard a lot of food and make sure that I had enough because food shortage was an immense painful moment um, mm. to have food shortage. <clears throat> and you sort of, if you look at American society now, you kind of measure when you open your refrigerator how healthy you are by having all this food in there. I'm like, that's not a measuring stick by any means. So I, I don't want food to control me. So I needed to take control of my own physical and emotional state to say you cannot have this effect on me. Mm. And it shouldn't have this effect on me. And again, we go back to the idea that we just spoke about 30, 30 seconds ago when he said, well, we need to turn around and not let Google control me. Right. Right. If you look at the remote control of a TV, we kept hitting the next button. But then you realize the remote control was controlling you. Right. Because of that conversation, I said, you know what? No, no. No more. So in that way, I now control the television. I control the food. I control technology in my life. So it's, and I have that discipline now. Yeah. Because I had to start. Did that um, sort of relation, that kind of um, like trauma-ridden relationship with food ever get like extremely difficult? Like did it, there come a time when you were like, I have to change my relationship to food or else it's going to be <clears throat> more damaging? Yeah, absolutely. What and, did that shift look like? And, and how were you able to uh, affect I, that change? Well... It was closely tied in your socioeconomics, right? So for me, I started eating lower on the food chain, meaning I kept eating junk food. It was the only way to feel this physical and to satiate this hunger. But then I realized it was deteriorating my physical health as well. That I right. wasn't very, you know, eating Jack in the Box or McDonald's wasn't really good for you. And, and because I'm in the industry, I understand that that wasn't food. Right. And so having more knowledge as I go along helped me. It helped weaponize and give me the tools that I needed to tackle my own psychological uh, reactions to food. It helped a lot. Just being really informed helps a lot. And I think that's what we need to empower ourselves with. It's really more information, mm -hmm. you know, and, and more dialogue. Certainly what you do, I want to validate what you do by having a discourse allows the other person to help their own discovery as well. Right. So I know it's a good exercise for me. And so talking about it also helps. Yes. Right. I mean, for me, that was the number one thing. Totally. Absolutely. Because we are humans. We need to connect and get it out. Yeah. It's just, it's very freeing when you begin to voice something because it's no longer just like so, um, it's not... I'm totally blanking on the word. Like when gas is like trapped in a, in a can or mm -hmm, something, mm -hmm. it's not... It's not festering inside you. Yeah, right? kind it's not of incubating yeah, yeah. in there. Yeah, totally. When you, you it definitely frees you up of totally. a lot of tension yeah. when you release. It is very that, liberating. That You're absolutely thing. right. It's totally liberating, and I also think that it gives you the room to develop new relationships to things. Yeah. I think when you are storing so much concentrated material of like one version of of a of a relationship uh -huh. or a feeling. Or something like that. It there is no room for shift or growth or change to happen. And you say the right thing because that those things have mass. Yeah, absolutely. It can be measured in our bodies. Totally. Right. Um, and again, we want to go back to that exercise you and I did that little demo about pinching. Right. Yeah. If you go look back now, that spot I pinched you, you're not going to feel it anymore. Yeah. Because we went over it and we released it. Yeah. In a sense, right? So it has no more effect on you. Do you think that cooking? Even like when I talked earlier about my, like after my devastating moment, like mm. the week of crying and like externalizing everything mm. um, and how afterwards I felt so euphoric and also um, I felt sort of internally free and, and clear enough to think about what I, or not even think about what I was going through in a new way, but feel what I was going through in mm -hmm. a new way. Do you think that your sort of version of that big cry has been your cooking? It's my outlet, I suppose. Yeah, that's um, what I mean. It's something I lean on um, to express myself. Yeah. And I think if we can't express ourselves through 
actually sitting down with someone like you and putting it out. I express it through food mm-hmm. and what I do with it. So, yes, it's um, <clears throat> it's become a, an amazing tool in my life and it happens to be my profession. So I'm sort of blessed and very lucky, you know, to have it serve me. Yeah. You know, and not me serving it. Right. So um, it's, it's kept me mentally healthy, um, changing my relationship with food. Yeah. How would you describe your relationship with food now? It's, it serves me, and it should. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. my tool to now go help others. Right. Uh, whether it's my sous chef who's learning the tricks, you know, the trade and understanding. And um, I, I, I've learned about leadership through it. I've learned about family and community and connection and trust. It's really opened all of those things for me. Yeah. You know, because my business is through food. And so, therefore, all of my connections and business relationship is through people that deal with food. And so it helps aid me in having a better relationship with uh, Ben Harcum or my business partner, Michael, mm-hmm. right? I'm a much, I perform a lot better. Right. So I serve them all well. Yeah. So in a sense, food has become a tool. Cooking has become uh, an outlet and a tool for me to better my relationships with other people. Yeah, that's amazing. And myself. Yes, the most important and myself, one. It's the important one, right? It needs to serve you. It needs to serve us. Totally. Right? And I think that's what I think about government. They need to serve us. We voted for them. <laughs> when did I ever talk so much about government in this past four years? It's right? insane. It needs to be in our background, working for us, like our utility bill. Right. Why is it on the forefront? So for me, I think we need to change our relationship with a lot of things. Yeah. And what nature or whatever God you believe in has given us these things to help each other. Yes, I agree to be honest and so we uh, perhaps are we blinded by it or we not seen it for what it is um, I just don't want to be a slave to it yeah I, so well I think now is it's like more commercial of a product as ever with like the rise in fast food and everything yeah it's, it's more like well I think they're losing the battle it's more branded than ever well, I think that's how we're also sort of it's becoming our relationship to it is not just as like this beautiful nutrient. It's like a whole other consumer product on a huge, huge, huge scale. And as you see more people eating local and organic, you see that there'll be a lot bigger push from your Chipotle's and McDonald's to do more commercials. Yeah. If you're losing your audience, you need to go back out and get your audience back. Right. So when I look at the rise in that, I just know we're doing something right. Do you think that that's, or like they're getting more successful so there's more money to do all of the advertising? No, I think they, PR is, and advertising is basically a reaction. It's a tool that businesses use because they're on a decline. Okay. Right? Okay, yeah. They, okay, guys, we, how do we figure out, do we run a sale? Do we promote? Do we run a commercial? Like, no, why, why would a business want to spend money on something that they shouldn't? Right, right. right. They get together and say, look, we need to spend more money because we feel our sales are slipping. Yeah. So otherwise, if you're making profits, why do you want to shrink those profits right. by other expenditures? Well, I hope so. I think there's definitely a lot of, a lot more information than ever right now about sort of like the harm that the fast food or like, yeah, fast food industry can do mm-hmm. to all of us. So I think that we are hopefully headed in a better direction. Um, I want to ask you one last thing. I know that balance is a huge um, component in cooking and in food consumption. And, and balance. What do you mean by balance? Um, balance of flavors or balance of work all life. Of it, I think. Well, so you're you're getting at it. Oh. Balance in in food and like nutrients and flavors is mm. such a big thing yeah and in those are like kind of the two main components of balance mm. and like textures there's so much their balance is sort of imbued in so many different facets of cooking and cooking. and i wanted to know because of what we talked about before with like work-life balance and all of that yeah how does balance how do you describe <clears throat> balance playing a role in it's, your life it, and i think that it, it is so perfect for you to talk about just because you do work with food, and balance is so key in food. And it's a challenge every time. Yeah. Like literally today, I we are indeed a tarragon vinaigrette dressing. It's like we kept looking at the, the levels of 
acid, of salt, of sweetness, and it's like, it's just this, and you're only given four pieces of the puzzle, but it's the most, it's the hardest four pieces of the puzzle there is, right? So it's still a challenge for me to find what balance is, mm. you know? I think <clears throat> having listened to myself, hey, are you spending too much time at work? Are you spending too much time on this? Are you spending, it's the only way I can Q&A myself through this process that if I'm being, I'm being sucked in, right? Did I not uh, engage with friends enough this week? So I need to look at everything and try to spread it out. But it's, I think it's a struggle all the way. How do you sort of practice implementing balance in your life? <clears throat> I, I think we're giving a finite set of time value. And it's, it's the only calculus that we have really or metrics that we have to measure uh, a 24-hour day like are you too much about working out are you too much about your job are you too much about your girlfriend or boyfriend so it's the only way to measure um, but it's hard to understand equilibrium and balance it's 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 still and I still struggle with it to be honest I'm not a master of it by any means but on the physical sense with food, it's easier, obviously, because I, I, I've been playing with it for so long. But there's an interesting word in Asian food that the Asians discovered, it's called umami, which is not sour, sweet, salty, or savory. It's a whole other dimension of flavor. Mm -hmm. How do I apply that in my own personal life? <clears throat> do I have umami in my life? So it's very interesting to apply food jargon and vernacular into real life, but it helps sometimes, but um, I still struggle with that. <laughs> are there anything, any things though that are sort of like that you go over mentally every day or every week to make sure that you're making an effort to implement balance in your life? Though? Yeah, I now get up earlier. I don't check emails right away. I, I do what is called a pour over coffee, which is essentially you have to stand there and get the right weight of the coffee. And you get the pour, you have to wait there's time to it. You just can't flip a button anymore right. and coffee's made for you. So I have that moment where I really am just tune in to exactly what I'm doing at that moment. And I sit down and enjoy that cup of coffee with not even checking emails yet, right? And oftentimes at 6.30, 7 in the morning, the sun's just barely broken over the east side and um, you, know, you, you understand where the shadows are from your room. And so I start studying that before I even go anywhere else so after half an hour 45 minutes that then I go on my day and it's it's pretty much go mm. right so I time it really correctly and I I try to at least go meet all of my guys from the two restaurants and then I'm also on another project that's sort of big here um, that requires you know a total re-identification so it does require a lot more of my time but Certainly, I'm I'm making my impressions on there. So, right. Uh, but it's difficult because the challenges of the day and how dynamic it is today it, it just pulls so much attention from you and pulls so much of your energy from you. So I, I want to treat it like a child. Where okay, I'm gonna leave you alone today. Yeah. Right. You're gonna be on your own. You're gonna fall, and that's okay. Right. So allowing. Um, letting go of control a bit yeah. brings balance into totally. your life. Totally, absolutely, you have to. Yeah, but that's also control, right? Being because, able to let go. Of yeah, because listen, I mean, at one point, you know, Dad had to let go of the bike so you can go. Right. Right, and and you when you went, you have this amazing sense of dopamine that gets released, and you like, oh my god, that was amazing, and then you find yourself jumping off curbs and, you know, doing dangerous stunts, and so. I, there is the same analogy to when we work with other people. How much do you let go? And how much do you linger on? Mm. Right? If we, if I have that girlfriend that constantly calls me, where are you? Where? It's like, you know, that gets tiring. That gets very controlling. Right. And it takes control away from everybody. So letting go also, there's this, this is push and pull that we do. That's very um, like food, right? Pushing flavor, pulling flavor. It, it really is in our relationships and, and balance.
Right. Yeah. Still hard. Yes. Hard for Still everyone. hard. Hard for me too. Yeah. And one final, final question. Uh, uh, there's never a final. You can ask as many as you like. What <coughs> food makes you feel the happiest and most at peace? It can be a dish or a single food object, food item, food object, um, a single food or a dish. It's a hard one. It's kind of like uh, if you're on a deserted island, <laughs> what would be the food that you take? I, I don't know. It's hard to live with one thing. I, the world is so expansive on what it offers. But I, I, I suppose chicken would be a protein or a product. I know protein. I know chicken transcends a lot of religious, you know, restrictions. Right. The Muslims, the Jews, the Christians, other than the other than the, you know, the Buddhist, um, it transcends a lot of cultural bounds and religious bounds. So for me, chicken and having a protein that's important that we find in some animal products that you can't find in plants. That makes you the happiest and most at peace? I think so. I think chicken transcends a lot, right? I mean, we've written so much about chicken. Interestingly enough, the egg from the chicken mm -hmm. is the first topic you learn in culinary school. No way. It's the egg. The egg is one of the most magical components of food because it emulsifies, it binds, it separates, it's used across in all forms of cooking, in all cultures. So with the chick with the egg comes the chicken, right? So, um, and because chickens require less land consumption, right? It doesn't harm our environment as much as a cow, right? Or pork, right? So, for do they the give you a ton of joy though to eat chicken? Oh my God! I made a roast chicken last night for a friend, and she said, "This is so. This is a restaurant quality chicken." I said, "No, it's not." I didn't do anything different to it. I just understood how to cook it. Is that your it. most favorite preparation of chicken? Roasted? I think so. I think to be as simple as we can, it's the hardest thing to be. Yeah. What a lot of chefs would do was try to drown it out with sauces and technique where we're like, okay, well, where's the chicken? I'm not tasting it anymore. Mm -hmm. I think we need to honor as chefs or any creator we need to honor what we do and bring out the essence of what it is what we're working on. Yeah. You know, if, if I give you a shrimp dish, there well better be shrimp on that and it needs to taste like shrimp. Our job is really to explore and celebrate the true taste and flavor of what that ingredient is. Mm. That to me is what we do. So chicken is your, your happy It's my go-to. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, whether it's chicken soup or roast chicken or chicken. I mean, that's, Maybe it has to do with your omelet experience. It, it, yeah, see, it all, all egg base. Grew, it grew out of that experience. It all from egg base. You're absolutely totally. right. You're absolutely right. Well, this has been this has been so lovely. Yes, I've, I've that was fun. This, and we'll have our our. We can split this last piece of orange. No, no, that's all you. I've been oh, eating along the way. Me so. too. <laughs> Thank and all of a sudden, so it's gone. Much. Can you believe that? Yeah, it's we had no idea it was uh, any in existence. Thank but you so to. much. Thank this you. Has been beautiful.